I don't know, more and more, at least for the last many years, relationship seems to be the hot topic. Everyone's talking about relationships, uh, whether it's a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with other believers you know, in the church or outside the church or inside the church, relationships as far as marriage is concerned, your relationship with your children, a coworker, you know, relationships on the job or your neighbor. It seems that everybody's emphasizing relationships, but I have this one question that I want to ask you this morning. Have you ever thought about, as a Christian, your relationship with the Holy Spirit? We don't give much attention to that, do we? We always talk about a personal relationship with Christ, but not much, really, in regard to the Holy Spirit. Now, there's an irony for me here, as our culture, and even within the church, talks about relationships, and it's this. With all the busyness of this world, with all the gaming, with all the technology, and all that stuff going around, with all the social media, uh, relationships are tougher and tougher to come by. But maybe that's the reason why people are emphasizing relationships. It's in response to all those things. Does that make sense? And I think it's a good response. I should, we, we should talk about them. But in our passage this morning, we're told about the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit, a dynamic ministry that is very relational, very intimate and personal. It's a ministry that's often misunderstood when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Yet, it's a ministry that is taught in Scripture quite clearly. So let's stand together and we're going to read our passage this morning. John chapter 7. We're going to read verses 32 through 39, but I'm going to be up front with you. The message is going to be about verses 37, 38, and 39. And I'll explain that when we're done and after we pray. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then 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 I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. It stops. That's the end of the middle of the week where he taught in the temple. Now, in verse 37, 38, and 39, we pick up on the last day. Verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this statement. To help us understand what Jesus was saying in verse 37 and 38, he says this in verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, who those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your revelation. It is divine. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It does that spiritual surgery on the soul to comfort, to encourage, not just to explain, but to drive us to the foot of the cross, to give us an understanding of the Trinity and, and, and your work 
in redemption and in sanctification and in those you save. And Lord God, this morning we're going to look at the depths of this work, of the ministry of the Spirit inside of us and what that looks like. And Lord God, I pray that everyone in this room would walk away just in awe of how personal and intimate you are with your children. And Lord God, please, encourage the faint-hearted this morning. Strengthen the weak. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, before we get to our text this morning, particularly the last three verses, I want to explain where I'm going to go this morning and next week. Okay, this morning and next week, we are going to wrap up chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. Now, what's happening from basically verse 30 through 53, I'm giving you a panoramic view right now, is you've got all this confusion. You've got this chaos in the crowd. The speculation, even opposition, and division over Jesus and his teaching. I mean, it's highlighted over and over again in chapter 7. Let me give you a few examples. Verse 30 and 31. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid hands on him, but they were seeking to seize him. This, this, this confusion, this opposition, the speculation was, was driving this. Look at verse 31, however. But many of the crowd believed in him. Some didn't like him, some did. Some didn't want to hear what he had to say, others did, and were began to embrace it. Verse 32, you had the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders. They were, wanted to seize him as well, and they sent officers to do that in verse 32. Look at verses 40 and 41, a little bit further on into chapter 7. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? You see the different responses of all different types and kinds from the crowd. Look at verse 43. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Verse 44, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him because it wasn't his time yet, right? And then finally, verse 53, everyone went to his own home. I don't think they knew what to do. There was so much confusion over him and his teachings. There were so many problems in understanding him, so much speculation going on. You had this one group that wanted to kill him. Others began to believe, and in all these groups in between, it's kind of like they were all frustrated, and everybody went home after the end of the feast, and nothing was actually really done. But that's all because it wasn't his time yet to go to the cross. So you have the midst of the feast. Next week, I want to look at that. But in particular, next week, I want to look at division. This morning, we're going to look at the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Next week, I want to look at how Christ divides. How Christ divides. It's still in the context of relationships. Right? He divides. How he does it, why he does it, and what's the ramifications of it, and what is our responsibility as Christians when we, when we come to Christ and all of a sudden it's caused a riff or a division with other people we used to get along with, but because Christ is now in our lives, he makes a difference, and all of a sudden there's this division that happens in our lives with other people. There's a separation, a distance that takes place. I want to talk about that next week because everyone has somebody in their family that this is, you, you felt that with, you've sensed this. Your interests have changed, but theirs is the same, and it causes a division. So we're going to look at that 
next week. But for this morning, we're going to really focus on verses 37, 38, and 39. I want to do this by asking three questions. I want to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, by asking three questions in this, these three verses. Number one, to what Old Testament passage does Jesus refer? What Old Testament passage does he refer when he says in verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Where does he get that from? Number two, does the Lord's prophecy, which is what this is, because John says he's talking about something yet future, so it's prophecy. Does, this Lord, does the Lord's prophecy refer to a specific time? If so, when is that time? Number three, what is the significance of this for us today? What is the significance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives today? You with me? Those are the three questions. And we're going to spend 80% of our time in the last one, the significance, okay? Because that's most important because that's going to speed us up to today and say, okay, what does that mean for us? How do, what does that look like in your life today? And it's going to get very, very personal for you, okay? Let's start with the first one. To what? Yeah, to what Old Testament passage does Jesus refer? Verse 38, as I just said, he who believes in me, as Jesus speaks this, he's referring to, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I looked and looked and looked. I looked at other commentaries. There is no Old Testament passage that has these words verbatim, not a one. Okay? But there's some that come very close. The Old Testament uses water in relationship to the Spirit often, but this is not really a quote. Let me give you some examples. Ezekiel chapter 36, for example, verse 25 and 26 and 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's the analogy of water. And you will be clean. I will clean you from all filthiness and from all your idols. What's the imagery of water there? It has a cleansing effect. But it's in relationship, verse 26, to the Holy Spirit. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, how will he accomplish, verse 26? I will put my spirit within you. Notice the association of the cleansing effect of water, that analogy, with the Holy Spirit. So you begin to get a glimpse of what the indwelling of the Spirit does in our lives, in your life. It's to begin to what? Cleanse you. Right? Okay? Let's try another one. Isaiah 58, 11. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places. He will guide you and satisfy you in scorched places, in the middle of a desert, in the hottest of heat. He will what? He will satisfy your desire. He will guide you and give strength to your bones, and you will be like a watered garden. Wow. Beloved, what a beautiful picture. Today, are you like a watered garden in a parched and dry culture? Are you? And like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, the waters of Christ, the water of the Holy Spirit, they do not fail. Amen? 
that plays such an important part in our lives in just a little bit when we continue to ask these questions. Let's go on. I'm going to go ahead and take us to Isaiah 44.3. If you're there, just back up a few more verses to 44.3. I think this is most likely the likely source. I think the other ones are as well, but this one comes really close as well. 44.3, excuse me. It says this, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring. You read that? You see that? The association again with the pouring out of water with the Holy Spirit. And my blessings on your descendants. You see the connection there. So what's going on? I think it's very possible here that in John chapter 7, when Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and to, to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It's very possible that our Lord did not have a specific verse in mind but instead refer generally to the Old Testament prophecies concerning the giving of the Holy Spirit. He's giving a general reference to all the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies concerning the life-giving and dwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit who would bring life to the soul as rain brings life to the earth. You see that? Isn't that beautiful? Second. So, to what Old Testament passage does Jesus refer to? All the Old Testament scriptures that deal with water and the Spirit. Second, does the Lord's prophecy refer to a specific time? The key to understanding this is the phrase in verse 39 that John explains. The very last phrase, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When would that be? I take it to be the day of Pentecost. It's the only one that really makes sense. His ascension and the day of Pentecost. He ascended and then that day came. The ascension is the high point of Christ's glorification. It's, it's, it's kind of like this. When he ascended to heaven, he got crowned again and sat down right next to the Father. The king is back in his position where he belongs. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a man. And you have the virgin birth. Talk about the humility of the creator. Jesus, who was there with the Father in Genesis 1, creating everything. Okay? The sovereign of the universe, the holy, holy, holy. After all that, came down in the form of man, the Son of God, and humiliated himself. Philippians chapter 2, by taking on the form of man. And not just by taking on the form of man, but going all the way to the cross. And at his ascension, it's like now that he has this body, he goes back to his throne. The crown is placed on top of his head, and he now sits at his rightful place, ruling and reigning, and in the church's hearts today. Wow. Yeah, that is what's taken place. That's where he is now. That is what happened. You know what? In Acts chapter 5... To wrap this up, in verse 30, 31, and 32, Peter refers to this. He looks back to the ascension, and he says this, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one who God exalted to his right hand. God the Father exalted the Son to his right hand. It's like the Father was waiting there to say, Here's your crown back, son. You finished your mission. You, you finished the redemption. You've completed. You're done. It is finished. You're now next to me again. 
He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as the prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him, obey the call to believe. Amen? And so, we're talking about the ascension of Christ. So finally, what's the significance of all this? Well, first, as we go back to chapter 7, we may need to make a simple observation, and it is this. What's in this prophecy is for those who believe. For those who believe, verse 38, he who believes in me. Verse 39, as John explains, whom whom those who believe in him were to receive. This promise, this prophecy is for those who believe. This prophecy of the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit is only for those who believe Jesus Christ. That's first and foremost. In other words, all of us today who are Christians can say that out of their heart flows spiritual rivers of living water because of the indwelling of this Holy Spirit. Because of his internal presence. In other words, as the analogy goes, as we drink of Christ, verse 37, read it. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If you drink from Christ, his life will flow. Like from Christ. In other words, the life of Christ is meant to flow through your lives as water flows down a river. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul captures this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Listen to these words. You you can see these words in Paul's passage here, particularly in this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The Christian life is not what I do for Christ. The Christian life, listen to me, look at me. The Christian life is not what you do for Christ. It's not what I do for Christ. It's wanting Christ to live his life through us. That's what Paul's getting at here. Wow. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's not about me anymore. It's not about how I live my life. Jesus, I want you to live your life through this vessel, through this body. But Christ lives in me. Can we say that? Do people see that? Again, this is the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit is for the purpose of Christ living his life through us. And the life which I now live in the flesh today, in 2018, on October, what's today, the 7th? I now live today in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, it's all about him. And it's not just, stop focusing, stop. Oh, what I could do for him, what I could do for him. That's more me-centered. And it begins to creep over into the works mindset. It's Jesus, 
I'm crucified. I'm taken care of. I, I'm, I've, I've identified myself with your death. I'm identified with your resurrection. I know you're coming to get me. No one can harm me. I have eternal security. If anyone does anything, can it maybe only be to the body? But that's it. They can't touch my soul. Uh, uh, so God, that, that frees me up. Jesus, live your life through me now. I want people to see you. Not my works, but you. The only thing I do, the only reason why I do things for you, Jesus, is because I want people to see you, not what I do. Relationship. You see that? That's so precious, isn't it? So precious. So Paul in Galatians 2.20 captures in a concise way the essence, I believe, 2.20 is the essence of the ministry, the work of the Spirit in our lives today. And this work is further described in the Gospel of John in chapters 14 and 16. So I want you to go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and I want to give you four descriptions of the New Spirit's New Testament work and the life of the believer, and we might only get done with two of them. But I got there's one I want to highlight because I don't think we ever spend much time in it, and I'll get and that'll be the second, the third one this morning. Excuse me. First of all, in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, verse six, chapter 14, verse six. Excuse me, verse 16. He comforts. He comforts. He comforts. This is what the Holy Spirit does in you. He comforts you. I will ask the Father, Jesus said, and he will give you another helper, another one. That means we have how many? Okay, okay. We also could find out we have two advocates too, okay? Another helper that he may be with you forever. A helper. He comforts, number one. The Greek word there is paraclete, which means advocate. The NASB that I read translates it, Helper. The NIV uses the word counselor. Some have suggested supporter or sponsor. But here's the point. Whatever one's translation is, it's important to realize that the word is used to express the closeness of the relationship the Holy Spirit has with you. That's the point. With the believer. At the heart of this word is that he will be your personal friend and will help and encourage you throughout your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. You cannot trick the Holy Spirit. You cannot outthink or outfeel him. If you think one thing and feel another, he knows it better than you do. He knows your thoughts. He knows your struggles. He knows your pains, whether it be emotional, physical, mental, or spiritual. He knows it all. That's how close he is with you, and he's still with you in spite of all that. Because a lot of times it's not very pretty. Right, exactly. And we're going to get to that in a few minutes. That's at the heart of the meaning of paraclete. The same word is used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, in reference to Jesus. He is our advocate with the Father. You know what the context of that is? When we, oops, sin. Kind of tells me we have a couple of advocates going on here. One who is on the throne. Get this picture. Listen to this. Oh, my God. I thought about this this morning. It just, it just, poof. 
So I'm slow. So I got it, but I finally got it. You have the first advocate, Jesus Christ. He's justified me. He's on the throne next to the Father saying, sin's covered, taken care of. Not that the Father has forgotten. He's just there. He's always there. But he justifies me. And that's where he is. But he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. So now I have another advocate, a comforter that helps me in my sanctification. The first advocate, Jesus Christ, is my justifier. He's justified me. The second one here, the one he prophesies about in chapter 7 in our text this morning, is the Holy Spirit who he promised to would indwell us to help us in sanctification. And he's in us. So Christ, our advocate, is on the throne next to the Father with his crown on, reigning from heaven, and he has sent us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to indwell us to help us in our sanctification, which we're going to learn gets messy, gets, it gets very painful, painful at times. He comforts. He comforts. Second of all, he indwells. Look at verse 17 of chapter 14. That is the spirit of truth whom the word cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Remember the context here in verse 17. He's talking to his disciples. They, you, you know him because he abides with you, but he says, and will be, but in the future will be in you. Pointing to Pentecost, pointing to the New Testament, the New Covenant, when that begins. He's in your midst right now. He's by your side, but he will be within you. Paul further expounds on this dwelling in Romans chapter 8, and that's where I'd love for you to turn this morning. And when I say what I love for you to turn to a passage, I want you there this morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, verses 9 through 27. Verses 9 through 27, and I'd be amiss if I did not remind us that we're on the heels of chapter 7. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 is where I want you. And I'd be amiss to tell you that this is on the heels of Romans chapter 7, where Paul shared the conflict within his soul, within his gut, within his heart, within his mind, the conflict of, I'm, I really want to please the Lord Jesus, but I find myself at times just messing up and not doing it. Here in verse 9, we begin in verses 9, 10, and 11 with the principle of the indwelling of the Spirit. And after that, we got application. So let's just walk our way through this chapter, verses 9 through 27. I think it will really bless your soul. Verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If condition, indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Right? It's, it's, the dwelling of the Spirit is if the Spirit dwells in you. There's the condition. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, stop right there. Notice what Paul's doing there, interchangeably. He's equating the Spirit of God with the Spirit of Christ. So to have the Holy Spirit in you is to have the Spirit of Christ in you. Why is that? Because the role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. To have the Spirit of Christ is to have the mindset of Christ. It's to have the passion of Christ. It's to have the desire of Christ. Living and abiding in you is to have his attitude, his outlook. Does that make sense? 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So to have the Holy Spirit in us is to have Christ in us, the Spirit of Christ in us. Verse 9, there's a principle. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, notice how he picks up on that. If the Spirit is in you, Christ is in you. Verse 10, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now that Spirit is a little s. You're alive unto... If Christ is in you, though the body, the physical body, these, you know, is dead because of sin, yet the spirit, your spirit inside is alive. You're a new creature in Christ. You have now a living, alive spirit, alive unto Christ, is Paul's idea here. Because of righteousness, because of his righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. There's hope right there, right? Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. Therefore, Christ is in you. You have hope in you, and you know he's coming to get you, and you have eternal life, verse 11. Though your body's going to die, you're going to live. Now, verse 12. Verse 12. The application is in verses 12 through 27, and it begins with verse 13 and 14. Number one, he leads us. The new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit means that, number one, he leads us. So then, brethren, we are, un- we are under obligation not to the flesh. I'm not obligated to serve the flesh anymore. But to live according, not according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, verse 13, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Ah. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Number one, he leads us. Where do you get the word lead? Verse 14. For this reason, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. i got to ask a question. You need to ask the text a question in verse 14. Where does he lead? Go back to verse 13. Verse 14, for this reason, he leads. For what reason does he lead? So that we put to death the deeds of the body. Why do we want to do that? Well, a lot of people would say, well, because I don't want to sin and I don't want to do bad things. I want to be a good person. That is not the motive. Here's the idea. Are you looking at me? I'm passionate about this. And it's going to unfold before your eyes as we continue on in this chapter. The Christian, because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is so in love with Jesus. It's all about him. And I don't want sin to get in the way of him living his life through this body. That's the point here. And beloved, what Paul's really talking about is spiritual warfare that happens not out there. This, is, this spiritual warfare is not happening out there in Washington, D.C., other parts of the world. This is not demonic. This is not demon. It's not all that. But all that happens out there. But here, here's where spiritual war, warfare happens for all of us. This, is the, this, is the, this, this playing field equals out everybody. It puts us all in the same field. It happens right inside of you. That's what he's talking about here. So where does the Holy Spirit lead? He leads me to say no to sin. He leads me to repentance. He leads me to fight. He leads me so when a, 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 a thought, a wicked thought 
comes into my mind, right then, I want to bring that thought captive to the obedience of Christ because I don't want that thought to turn into a deed. And in order to do, so that's what's happening here. But if by the Spirit we are putting to death, the word means mortify. Put to death, mortify the deeds of the body. You will live. That's what the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit is all about. It leads the believer to, to, to say no to sin, to mortify it, to put those deeds to death because he's so in love with it. He doesn't want anything to get in the way of him showing forth the goodness of Christ. That's the passion. That's the plea. It's not about being good. It's not about being holier than thou. That's why the world misunderstands us. Oh, you're just you're just holier than thou thinking. You know, you're goody two shoes. No, 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 really. You want to really have to close close to me and know me? I'm not. It won't take long for you to find out. But it's not about me. It's about Christ. And that's why Jesus says the world's going to hate you. Because it hates me. But the only reason why it hates you is because you're trying to live for Christ and because you want him to live his life through you. And when you're doing that, the world's going to hate not you, but the Christ who's living through you. Comforts, he indwells. We continue on with this principle of indwelling in Romans 8. He leads us to say no, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to repent. I love what comes next. Let's just go to verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. What does verse 15 have to do with 13 and 14? What does it have to do? Well, you don't follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit because you're afraid of punishment. You do it because you're a child of God. And a child wants to be like his father. The child wants to be like his savior. That's the modus operandi. It's love. I, I so love Jesus that and I want him to live his life through me because I love his life. I love his person. I love his work. I love all that he stands for. I love his character. I love his holiness. I love his righteousness. Oh, people need to see more of him and less of me. Isn't 15 beautiful? And we as adopted sons and daughters, we cry out, Abba, Father. Why do we cry out? Because in the midst of all this desire to want to exalt Christ, it gets very painful. Let me continue. What does the Spirit also do? He testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. There's the proof, the testimony. Listen, how do you know the Spirit indwells you? You're going to have a passion for Christ. You're in love with him. And then you're going to want to be sanctified. You're going to want to grow in grace. You're going to want to say no to sin. You're going to want God to deal with sin in your life. You're going to want him to set you apart. There's no question about it. You want him as Lord, not just as Savior. You want your life changed. You want him to change your desires. You want to take on Jesus. That's what it means. That's how the Spirit witnesses to our spirit that we are His children. Like Father, like Son. So He leads us. He testifies. 
And I want to go to verse 26, but I want to show you what happens without reading it all. What happens in verses 17 through 25? He points out that there's an internal strife and internal suffering that goes on in the life of the child of God, the adopted one, the Christian who so desires Christ to live in and through their lives. And if children heirs also, verse 17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him. In other words, it's painful when we sin. Why is it so painful? Because it gets in the way of this vessel being used to honor Christ. And my passion and my first love is to honor him. So when selfishness or my sin, old sin nature most gets in the way, it's, I suffer because it's painful inside my soul. And it causes you to cry. It causes you to cry out. I think Paul, when he's writing this, is referring back to chapter 7, particularly verse 24, wretched man that I am. He didn't say that, wretched man that I am. He said it with tears flowing down his eyes. Understanding, even as a believer, his struggle with sin. And he cries out, who's going to set me free from the body of this death? And all he can do in verse 25 is cry out to God, thank you, God, through Jesus Christ. You're my deliverer. So that on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, and I want to serve the law of God. What does that mean? I want to obey God. I want to do those things that are pleasing to Him. But there are times where I stumble and fall and realize I'm not pleasing Him. There's sin in my life. Whether it's a bad motive, whether it's a bad attitude, whether it are words that are unseasoned with grace that come out of my mouth, or whether it's an action. Just it's the whole gamut there. But notice chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now, now, at that moment, at that moment, because you're justified by the first advocate, Jesus Christ, at that moment, in the midst of your pain, the midst of your internal suffering and strife, because you've fallen into sin, even at that moment, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why the Reformers and the Puritans said, always preach the gospel to yourself. It's not just for the unbeliever. It's for the believer when he falls or she falls into sin. Remind yourself who you are. Know who you are in Christ. Now we pick up in verse 26 of chapter 8. Chapter, I say chapter 6. Chapter 8, verse 26. Still in Romans, excuse me. Notice what he does in verse 26. He helps your weaknesses. He leads us to say no to sin, to mortify the deeds of the faith. He testifies with our spirit, giving us evidence and proof that we are children of God. And now he helps us when we are weak. In the same way, verse 26, the spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. Now, what's the context here? The context isn't necessarily I'm lacking a physical need or an illness or a sickness. The context remains the internal suffering and pain as a result of sin in your life. Wow. You can't outflank the Holy Spirit. You can't trick him. 
But sometimes in the spiritual warfare that happens in us, you struggle maybe so much with forgiving somebody. Or you're struggling so much with anger, and you know it's just getting in the way of Christ living his life through you that you are just mourning over and you're suffering. It's an internal suffering. It's so painful. And and God, I'm repenting, but I I feel this coming back on me, this anger towards this person or this circumstance. Oh, God, it's hard to get rid of. You know, it's gripping me. God, sometimes I don't even know how to pray. At that moment, the Word of God says the Holy Spirit's praying for you. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's as if you're stifled and Spirit says, don't worry, I'll take it from here. I know what to say. Whatever he says, it's according to the word of the will of the Father. Isn't that beautiful? This is relationship, right? This is so personal. This is a New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He helps us when we're weak. We're so weak we don't even know how to pray as we should. And he does it, in other words, he intercedes. Those two are in verse 26. He takes over. And he says, I got you. I'm going to intervene at this point. That's what that word means. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to take over. I'm going to represent you before the Father. Isn't that incredible? You you don't see it. You don't see him. But the Word of God says it happens nonetheless. He's there for you. How much more intimate can you get than that? How much more personal can you get than that? Talk about relationships. Talk about knowing one another. We talk about it all we want, but God is the creator of relationships. Let's never forget that. And here we are on our struggling with them. He's the creator of them. <laughs> Let me stop for a minute and ask you this question. Are these principles, are they real in your life? Have you gone through this? Has, have you had the Holy Spirit lead you to say no to sin? Have you experienced his testifying in your life that you are a child of God? Have you ever been at your wits end with sin? And it basically don't know how to pray? Have you ever been there? I'm going to say every one of you have been. And if you don't think so, I think you're lying. I've been there too. More times than you care to know. But he intercedes. He's there. If you don't know these things, if these characteristics are not a part of your life, then you need to back up and ask the question, does the Holy Spirit indwell me? Which is another way of saying is this, am, do I truly believe Christ? But here's what happens as Christians. We get together and we take this and we kind of push it off to the side because I don't want you to know how much I struggle at times. I want you to think good of me and better of me. So when we get together, we kind of hide these things behind. We tuck them under or leave them at home, and we present this, everything's fine. I'm doing great. One of the sweet things about fellowship is 
what we're reading here about the ministry of the Holy Spirit overflows in our lives to each other. And it should be how we minister to one another. Does that make sense? Let's, let's, let's finish up. Let's go back to John 7 real quick. I'm not even going to finish my notes. I want, to, I want us to go back to the main text here in chapter 7. And Jesus says this, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. You see, the reason why we drink of Christ is so that when we're together, others can taste him through us. And part of that taste is sharing the difficulties we've experienced in life, even the stumbling blocks of sin that have gotten in our way. And I guarantee you, the more you talk about it, the more blessing you'll become to other believers, the more comfort you'll be to them, the less alienated they will feel because they're going to be thinking, wait a minute, I never knew he or she went through a struggle like that that I've had in my own life. And so instead of alienating each other in a fellowship, we begin to encourage one another and get closer in our fellowship. Why? Because it is a, it's a, the af, not the aftermath, it is the overflow of the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer. And let me finish with John 16, because I, I would be amiss by concluding with this. Verse 14. Jesus says, he, that is the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. That is the purpose of the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you have people out there talking all nothing but the Holy Spirit, that is not of the Spirit. But you have people who have this passion and this incredible love to exalt Christ before others so much that they want Jesus to live his life through them. That is the evidence in the testimony that the Holy Spirit dwells in me. It doesn't come by talking about the Holy Spirit. It's about living for Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, I pray that we as a body would would come to understand this a little bit more and a little bit more, that we would not be threatened by one another's perfection because it truly does not exist, but encouraged and comforted by one another's struggles. It doesn't mean we go blabbing everything we do. I'm not saying that, okay? Please, I'm not saying that. Don't go blabbing everything in detail that you've done wrong. You do that, I'm going to call you out. That's just flat wrong. But in very general terms, yeah, I've struggled with that, and I've really had a hard time with that. You don't need the details, but I need your prayers. I might need a phone call. I need help. I need someone to come alongside me. Yes, I have the Holy Spirit, but I've been groaning and moaning over this. I am so, I'm in such pain because I know that this, this thinking or this attitude I've had for a long time is, is preventing Jesus from living his life in and through me. And I don't want that anymore. And I need help. And you're not an island that can do this on your own. We're the church. We're the body. It's not enough just to read the Bible and to hear a sermon. That's what fellowship's all about. We need each other as we all strive to exalt Christ and come along and apply the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Your word is so real, so precious. It's truths of your word which resonate in our lives today as your children. So God, I ask, we ask that you would bring these portions of scripture to bear on our lives today. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would, uh, the Spirit would just increase his ministry of sanctification, of cleansing like water. And Father, in that we would overflow with that onto each other to encourage one another, comfort one another, to be there for each other. So that we are together, only one rises to the top, and that's you, Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. Jesus, it's in your name we ask these things. Amen.